You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. Uh, 
mentioned to some folks uh, earlier this evening that I've had the pleasure and the privilege uh, in the past couple of years of getting to know the great Carla Hayden, uh, a relatively new librarian of Congress, the first woman and the first African-American to hold that important post. And I know that she credits uh, the Pratt Library for making her into the extraordinary administrative force of nature uh, and change agent that she's become. So uh, a great library, like a great museum, can serve as a time machine. It can transport us to distant eras and faraway places, and we'll use this setting to do just that tonight for a few minutes, traveling to a place in time of bitter partisan rancor, of uncertainty about the present, of deep anxiety about the future, and of savage political discord. And no, I don't think we're going down Washington. It's where I happen to live. Uh, last time, as I mentioned, I was in Baltimore I, uh, to speak. I had just finished a three-volume, 750,000-word uh, narrative about the American role of liberation of Europe in World War II, a project that took me 15 years. And even before the final volume came out, I was pondering what to do next, and I kept thinking of Jack London's advice that rather than sit back and wait for inspiration, a writer ought to light it up after it with a club. <laughs> the obvious thing would have been to pivot to the Pacific and do for that campaign what I had done for the Mediterranean and Western European theaters, but that didn't have much appeal because it would have required me to start World War II all over again, Pearl Harbor even earlier. And besides, I couldn't shake a personal fascination uh, with a different war in an earlier century, a fascination that I've had since I was a kid. So I took my club and I did it out after. So I've now completed the first volume of what I hope will be another trilogy. The British are coming, opens with an extended prologue in June 1773, when King George III travels to Portsmouth on the southern coast of England for a four-day review of the Royal Navy. It's a fantastic, proud display of military muscle precisely a decade after the creation of the first British Empire with Britain's victory over France and Spain in the Seven Years' War, the French and Indian War as we know it. 1773 is the year the phrase, the sun never sets on the British Empire was coined. And the book ends with the two battles of Trenton and the Battle of Princeton in January 1777, which together resuscitated American hopes that it seemed all but extinguished at that point. Let me suggest that there is a lot to dislike about the founding fathers and the war they waged for American independence. The stirring assertion that all men are created equal did not, of course, apply to 500,000 black slaves, one in five of all souls living in the 13 colonies when those fine words were written in 1776. Nor was it valid for Native Americans, women, or Indians. For the eight-year duration of the American Revolution, those who remained loyal to the crown, or even fence travelers uncertain of the wisdom of armed rebellion against their government, often were subjected to dreadful treatment. Public shaming, disenfranchisement, confiscation, beatings, torture, exile, and sometimes execution. Some were imprisoned on Hudson River scows anchored below Albany, or were lowered by a wind of 70 feet below ground into an old abandoned Connecticut copper mine and rock walled cells that were known simply as hell. Partisan belligerence metastasized into civil war. John Adams later said, I would have hanged my own brother had he taken part with our enemies in the contest. Conformity, censorship, and zealotry flourished. In a defensive war waged for liberty and to secure basic rights, the Americans promptly invaded Canada in an attempt to win by force of arms what could not be won by blandishment and negotiation, a 14th column. The enduring image of the open farmer leaving his plow in the furrow to grab his musket and go off in defense of liberty is mostly mythical. During the Revolution, General George Washington's army was rarely larger than 20,000 troops and sometimes 
diminished to 3,000. This is a country of two and a half million people. Especially after the martial enthusiasm that had been aroused at Lexington and Concord and Bunker Hill faded in 1775, relatively few American men volunteered for military service, especially if it required enlisting for the duration in the badly armed, badly fed, badly clothed, and often badly led American Continental Army. And that. Who would deny that the creation story of our founding remains valid, vivid, and often fulfilled? Even in 2019, at a moment when national unity is elusive, when our partisan rancor seems ever more toxic, when the simple concept of truth is assailed, that story informs who we are, where we came from, what our forebears believed, and perhaps the most profound question any people can ask themselves, what they were willing to die for. Indeed, at least 25,000 Americans died in the struggle, and perhaps many more. It's a larger proportion of our population to die in any of our wars other than the Civil War. So, what can we learn from that ancient quarrel? First, that this nation was born bickering. <laughs> Disputation is in the national genome. Second, that there are foundational truths that not only are indeed true, but are, as the Declaration of Independence tells us, self-evident. Third, that leaders worthy of our enduring admiration rise to the occasion with grit, wisdom, and grace. And fourth, that whatever trials beset us today, we have overcome greater perils, existential perils, before. That should be a great comfort to us. We're the beneficiaries of an enlightened political heritage handed down to us from that revolutionary generation after many subsequent struggles. It includes strictures on how to divide power and to keep it from accumulating in the hands of those who think primarily of themselves. We cannot let that heritage slip away. We cannot permit it to be taken away. We cannot be oblivious to this priceless gift for the hundreds of thousands who have given their lives to affirm and sustain it. Now, the American Revolution was not a war between regimes or dynasties fought for territory or the usual commercial advantages, but rather an improvised struggle between two peoples of a common heritage who had been gradually sundered by divergent values and conflicting visions of what the world could become. The Americans eventually won by embracing fewer strategic misconceptions than the British did. Certainly the Americans could be wrong-headed in believing they had greater economic leverage over the mother country than they actually possessed, for example. Or in caricaturing George III, who sat on his throne for 60 years and was shrewder, more complex, and more admirable than the overbearing enemy who still dominates our imaginations, and even tonight somewhere is missing across the stage of Hamilton. <laughs> Yet George and his ministers made Three critical miscalculations. One, that most colonists remain loyal to the crown, notwithstanding troublemakers in New England capable of rousing a rabble. Two, that firmness, including military firepower, would intimidate the obstreperous and restore harmony. And three, that failure to reassert London's authority in America would eventually unstitch the newly created British Empire encouraging insurrections in Canada, Ireland, the Sugar Islands of the West Indies, India. It's an 18th century version of the domino theory that would propel us into Vietnam 150 years later. Britain also underestimated the difficulty of waging war, a protracted war, across 3,000 miles of open ocean in the age of sail. Expeditionary warfare would have waged in North America in the 18th century or in Central Asia in the 21st century is among the most difficult martial undertakings. The 
British Army in the Revolution, unable to gather food and forage in the American countryside without being ambushed, relied largely on provisions shipped from English and Irish ports. But of 40 transport vessels dispatched to Boston in the winter of 1775-76, only eight of those 40 reached the King's troops in Boston after sailing from Britain. The rest were blown by gales back to Britain or blown to the West Indies or were intercepted by rebel marauders. Of 550 Lincolnshire sheep carried on ships that actually made it to Boston, that breed was deemed to be the fittest to undergo the rigors of transatlantic travel. Of those 550 sheep, 40 arrived alive. Of 290 hog ship, just 74 arrived alive. When the British moved to New York in the summer of 1776 and asked for 950 horses, to pull their artillery carriages and their supply wagons so they could go somewhere, 412 of the 950 horses that were shipped from Britain died during the passage. Scores more were ruined beyond use by the hardships of the voyage. Similar difficulties plagued the British for years. Logistics is always hard in war. I've personally seen how hard in Somalia, Bosnia, Iraq, Afghanistan. Even when the Americans were fighting on their home turf, they faced enormous difficulties. Of 75 official letters that General Washington wrote in January and February 1776, more than half mentioned munition shortages, often <coughs> pleading fretful terms, especially gunpowder, which he just refers to as the thing. <laughs> It's, it's difficult to make musket balls without lead. And by the summer of 1776, the Americans were desperately short of this stuff. In New York, more than 100 tons of lead weights from fishing nets and clocks and window sash cords were collected to make bullets, along with lead from downspouts and window canes and pewter dishes. Without salt, armies and navies couldn't stockpile meat and fish needed to travel anywhere. Two bushels of salt, more than 100 pounds, were needed to cure 1,000 pounds of pork. Before the war, Americans imported 15 million bushels annually, half from the West Indies, the other half from Britain and Southern Europe. But the, when the shooting started, the British trade embargo strangled two-thirds of that supply. And to encourage salt works along the coast, Salt-making recipes were printed in newspapers, and pamphlets were printed with recipes. All the old women and children are gone down to the Jersey Shore to make salt, John Adams wrote. But 400 gallons of seawater needed to boil off a bushel of salt. That takes enormous stacks of firewood. Virginia spent more than 6,000 pounds, a huge sum of money in those days, to build evaporation ponds along the Chesapeake Bay but in the end collected only 50 bushels, probably the most expensive salt in the history of salt. <laughs> Yet those problems, substantial as they were, hardly matched Britain's problems. The thousand tons of bread required each month to feed British soldiers in New York often arrived from depots in Cork on the southern coast of Ireland, moldy and infested with Irish rats. There's no rat as nasty as an Irish rat. <laughs> and those rats soon infested British storehouses on Staten Island. For the winter of 1776-77, the British needed 64,000 cords of firewood, 70 tons of candles. The daily allowance of a gill of rum for each red coat. The gill was five ounces. It's about a gallon a month, which gives you an idea of inebriation problems in the British Army. That required enormous amounts of shipping space. The British Navy Board needed 400 transports and victualling ships to move and supply the large force in New York. It was triple the tonnage used at the peak of the Seven Years' War, which was a global war. Let me talk for a moment about George, our last king. He's an intriguing adversary. Queen Elizabeth II only recently opened up to outside scrutiny the Georgian papers, which she owns, 
as part of a project to digitize and catalog the papers from all four Georges who became king in the 18th and 19th centuries. There are 350,000 pages, mostly from the reign of George III, and most of them previously unpublished. I was one of the first allowed in to take a look for a whole month in April 2016 at Windsor Castle, just west of London, where the papers are stored. And every morning, I would show my badge at the Henry VIII Gate, and I'd show it again at the Norman Gate, and I would climb 102 stone steps and 21 wooden stairs to the garret of the Round Tower, begun by William the Conqueror in the 11th century. And there are the papers, in gorgeous, oversized red binders. George was his own secretary until late in life, when he began to go blind. And he wrote not only most of his correspondence himself, he made copies himself. And as you pull through these pages, there's a tactile sense of being in his presence. Among other things, he's a great list maker. Lists of British garrisons abroad from 1764 to 1775. Lists of Royal Navy vessels under construction in various shipyards. Lists of all his regiments in America with the number of officers, musicians, and rank and file listed in columns with his arithmetic scratchings in the margins as he does his sums. George Coffey got his own recipes for cough syrup. I'll get you some. <laughs> Rosemary, rice, vinegar, brown sugar, all boiled in sugar silver. Recipes for insecticide. Wormwood, vinegar, lime, swine's fat, quicksilver. He was interested in everything from music and astronomy to horology, the study of time, and the use of manures in agronomy. He'd married an obscure, drab German princess, Charlotte, as in Charlottesville, Virginia, Charlotte, North Carolina. She learned to play God Save the King on the harpsichord on the voyage from Germany to England. They married six hours after they met. He had the marriage bedroom decorated with 700 yards of blue damask and large basins of goldfish. Because nothing says I love goldfish. <laughs> the happy union proved fertile. She produced children with lunar regularity, eventually to number 15. And we see in this personal correspondence that George is a caring father. He's invested in the rearing of his kids. And through all this, he's trying to figure out the proper course for the British Empire, for the monarchy, and for his people. He's easy enough to dislike, but impossible, I find, to detest or simply to dismiss as a reactionary autocrat. The war he chooses to wage, and he chooses to wage it because he is the hardest of the hardliners in London, is brutal, bloody, and often savage. Unlike modern war, killing is usually intimate, at very close range, face to face, often with a bayonet. That's partly because 18th century muskets were mostly inaccurate beyond 80 yards and almost hopeless beyond 100 yards. Scholars have calculated that in the fights that Lexington conquered and the British retreat to Boston on April 19, 1775, the first day of the war, the Americans fired at least 75,000 rounds, but only one in every 300 actually hit a red coat. The shocker around the world probably missed. <laughs> On the other hand, mass musket fire, clusters of men firing in volleys, sending swarms of one-ounce lead slugs downrange at maybe a thousand feet a second, that could be devastating. A man five feet eight inches tall, a little shorter than I am, had an exterior surface of 2,550 square inches, of which 1,000 were exposed to gunfire when he was facing an enemy frontally at close range. Given the primitive inadequacy of 18th century medicine, which is hardly worthy of the name, if you're hit in the torso, you have more than a 50% chance of dying. If you're hit in the head, your chance of survival is even less. By the way, later studies by the British Army demonstrated that soldiers wearing conspicuous red uniforms were more than twice as likely to be shot in combat as those wearing muted blues and grays. Duh. 
<laughs> American marksmen, especially those few with rifles, which were more accurate than muskets but were harder to load and couldn't carry a bayonet, learned to target the brightest of the red coats. Those are almost vermilion in hue because they were usually worn by officers who could afford the more expensive dyes to make those coats pop. In the Battle of Bunker Hill on June 17, 1775, the British captured roughly a square mile of rebel-held territory at a cost of over 1,000 casualties, including 226 British dead. Now, the British are coming is not something Paul Revere called out while galloping through the Middlesex countryside in the early morning of April 19, 1775. That wouldn't have made sense to people who at that moment still thought of themselves as British. What he's quoted as shouting over and over again is the regulars are coming out, meaning the regular British Army coming out of Boston. But I use the British are coming as a title because it's a metaphor for what those first couple of years of the war are really about. The British are coming relentlessly with most of their ferocious professional army, with nearly half of the greatest navy the world has ever seen, with 30,000 German mercenaries, and they're coming to kill your men, rape your women, plunder your homes, and in some cases burn your towns to ashes. It's a dire thing. Well, those are some of the nuts and bolts of 18th century warfare, but what are the emotional guts of the revolution? That's what still moves us, stirs our pride, makes us feel that those men and women of a dozen generations ago have something to say to us. Why is that? Well, certainly that revolutionary generation can seem so distant as to be almost a foreign people. If irony and skepticism are the twin lenses of modern consciousness, the revolutionaries often seem archaic, much less ironic and skeptical than the 21st century descendants. They speak English, of course, but they have their own argo and idiom, their own slang. For example, passing counterfeit money, widely practiced in the 18th century, was known as shoving queer. Someone who died took heaven by the way. British soldiers in Boston, by the way, often refer to Americans derisively as Jonathans. But those are minor differences. We rightly admire those Americans for their endurance, their pertinacity, their sacrifice, not only displayed by men serving in the ranks, but by others swept up in the fraught events of those times. Lois Peters of Connecticut hadn't seen her husband, Captain Nathan Peters, in months when she wrote to him, pray come home as soon as possible. A visit from you at any time would be agreeable. <laughs> Meanwhile, she would harvest the corn, sell her oxen for enough cash to keep the family saddle solvent, sew a shirt and take great pleasure doing it, she wrote, and keep faith with the future. She signed her letters, your loving wife, until dead. <laughs> General Nathaniel Green, Quaker Anchor Smith from Rhode Island makes one of the worst operational decisions of the war by leaving 3,000 American troops exposed and vulnerable at Fort Washington on Manhattan Island, where in the space of eight hours on November 16, 1776, they were trapped and killed or captured. This is a time when American generalship is often characterized by miscalculation, misfortune, imprudence, and deficient military skills. But Green picks himself up takes a deep breath, and writes to Cotty, his wife. The virtue of the Americans is put to a trial. I'm hardy and well amidst all the fatigues and hardships. Be of good courage. Don't be distressed. All things will turn out for the best. Be of good courage. He's speaking to us, to you and to you. He's certainly speaking to me. The sheer drama of the revolution keeps it compelling and often thrilling. From the bloodletting of Bunker Hill, where one of every brave eight British officers killed during the Long War would die in four hours. To the skin of the teeth escaped by Washington and his army across the East River in the fog in the late August of 1776 after a terrible drumming on Long Island. And beyond the battlefield, the theatrical power and pathos of the conflict 
Surely Algon's name brought his imagination. The abrupt arrival of a septuagenarian <coughs> Benjamin Franklin in Paris in December 1776 to woo the French absolute monarchy into an alliance with radical republicans. The 100,000 smallpox deaths in North America from 1775 to 1782. Those white men sitting in Philadelphia in the summer of 1776 lashing their horse flies with their handkerchiefs while carving up Thomas Jefferson's draft declaration to make it shorter and much better. The many American families, Ben Franklin's among them, ripped apart by irreconcilable political differences. Well, if the central figures in our creation story have frequently been embalmed in reverence, they nonetheless remain beguiling, worthy of perpetual scrutiny and often of emulation. Washington's case in point. Yes, he owned more than 300 slaves when he died at Mount Vernon in 1799. You cannot square that circle morally. He demonstrated shortcomings as a tactical commander at Fort Washington and Long Island and the underground fields. The man who proverbially could never tell a lie sure could prevaricate. <laughs> Washington's carping about his troops, his officers, and his lot in life. Distrust everything with Rumble in 1776 transforms the demigod into a sometimes petulant mortal. Yet great responsibility enlarges him. He rightly embodies the sacrifice of personal interest to a greater good, as well as other Republican virtues, smaller, probity, dignity, moral stamina, incorruptibility, traits that should remain true north for every citizen today, traits that we should demand in our leaders at every level. Some years ago, the uh, distinguished historian John Shaw, taught at the University of Michigan for eons, wrote that the Civil War, like every other major event in American history, including World War II, as a tragic human two-sided quality that the revolution seems to lack. The whole complex of revolutionary events takes on a smooth, self-contained character that makes getting the right emotional grip on the subject very difficult. My premise is that tragedy is the bedrock of every war because every war is about young men and sometimes now young women dying young. And my ambition has been to find that emotional grip, as Professor Shaw put it, to revive the tragic human multi-sided quality that saturates the American saga from 1775 to 1783. So we see Lieutenant Edward Hall, a young Scottish officer in the 43rd Regiment of Foot, shot at North Bridge and conquered, shot again during the British retreat toward Boston, captured by the Americans in agony from three bullet wounds, Sucking on an orange donated by a compassionate rebel, he lingers for nearly two weeks in a twilight of pain and remorse before he too takes heaven away. We see Mary Pierce, the widow of a private killed at Bunker Hill while fighting with the Massachusetts militia, as she petitions the Commonwealth for precisely five pounds and twelve shillings in compensation for her husband's lost coat, trousers, stockings, shoes, buckles, silk handkerchief, knife, and tobacco box. Or General Richard Montgomery, in the assault on Quebec, where he's the commander, hit by great shots from both thighs and mortally through the face. His effects were auctioned off to his officers a couple days after his death, item by item. Two volumes of Polybius, Johnson's Dictionary of the English Language, Buffalo Skin and Clothes Brush, bought by Captain Aaron Burr, and a wardrobe including ruffled shirts, hollow waistcoats, and a pair of Tetons, all bought by Benedict Arnold. Or we see Illinois, the island of nuts. It's a couple hundred acres in the Richelieu River, just above the New York border, where thousands of American soldiers retreating from Canada in June 1776 jammed a malarial hell. Half of them suffering from smallpox, dysentery, typhus, or some other god awful malady. In 
infested with mice and maggots. One doctor wrote, we had nothing to give them, it broke my heart and I wept until I had not more power to weep. And we see Matthew Patton of Bedford, New Hampshire, whose son John had survived a gunshot wound in the arm of Hunter Hill, but did not survive even on the mall. Mr. Patton wrote simply in his diary, I got an account of my John's death of the smallpox at Canada. He was 24 years and 31 days old. Historian Bruce Patton considered the Civil War a redemptive tragedy. Surely the same can be said of the American Revolution. It embodied the enduring aspirations of an idealistic and brought forth a nation abounding with a sense of destiny. No wonder the world was a God. The cause of America, wrote the essayist Thomas Paine, is the cause of all mankind. Even now, the war for independence offers clues to our national temperament. It remains a bright mirror in which we see traits that fashion the American character, from resilience and and ingenuity to brutality and pugnacity. We've come far in almost two and a half centuries in power, diversity, tolerance, and sheer scale. But in some respects, those ancestors remain nearer than we know. Their existential struggle churned up issues that perplex us to this day, including individual liberty versus collective security the proper limits on executive power, the obligations of citizenship, and the elusive quest for a more equitable society. The tacit primal question of 1776 persists in 2019. Who do we want to be? Democracy is never a thing done, the poet and librarian of Congress, Archibald McLeish, told us. Democracy is always something a nation must be doing. Even Jefferson's Declaration, our foundational secular scripture, we hold these truths to be self-evident. It's dynamic, never a thing done, something a nation must be doing. The great Yale historian Edmund Morgan wrote that the creed of equality did not give men and women equality, but invited them to claim it, invited them not to know their place and keep it, but to seek and demand a better place. The American Revolution lasted 3,089 days. And the result was epical and enduring. The creation of the American Republic, one of mankind's greatest achievements. Nearly 90,000 more days have elapsed since those horsefly swatting men asserted the human birthright of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Keeping faith with those who fought, suffered, and died for the principles we profess still cherish, requires more than a nodding acquaintance with them, more than a perfunctory acknowledgement of their struggles. For better and for worse, their story is our story. Their fight remains our fight. Thanks again for having me. field 
over the last 200 plus years. Um, I will tell you that Ken Burns is working on it as his next project. Um, those of us who toil in this vineyard are aware of a new word that um, I've uh, burned in my brain now, and it's semi-quincentennial, which means 250. The 250th anniversary of Lexington and Concord will be in 2025, for example. There'll be a sequence of 250th anniversaries. There's a federal commission now working on how to commemorate it. So it'll be a big deal in a few years. And those of us uh, who are working in this are very aware of and Ken Burns foremost among them. Just hope you don't suck all the oxygen out As for movies, um, well, as someone who has sold uh, movie rights, particularly to a book I wrote about the West Point class of 1966, it came out 30 years ago last month, and I've sold the movie rights over and over and over again for ever diminishing amounts of money. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it never gets made. Uh, uh, you know, I see, I write narrative history, which means the story is paramount. And the story, of course, including character and drama and all the things that stories require. Uh, so I see stories everywhere that seem to me to be viable candidates for filmmaking, uh, but uh, Hollywood does what Hollywood does. I, I do my thing, they can do whatever they want. Sir? Um, yes, do you define uh, one of your book going to the reasons why some African-Americans fought with the rebels and some fought with the British and loyalists? Uh, yeah, I, I write about it, and I will continue to write about it because it's an important part of the story. Um, there are African Americans who are at Bunker Hill, for example. And uh, uh, one of the most interesting aspects of the first couple of years of the war is the British trying to decide what to do in terms of liberating slaves. And, uh, and Governor, uh, Governor of Virginia, um, Parliament is still debating it. The king and his ministers are debating it. He takes the bull by the horns and announces in 1776 that he will offer freedom to any slave who leaves his rebel master and comes and fights on the side of the British. Thousands of them make the effort to break away. Incidentally, uh, he does not make that same offer to the slaves of loyalists, nor does he free his own slaves, which number dozens. Thousands of slaves, however, rallied the British. The British are basically holed up around Norfolk. And uh, it's a catastrophe for the British and for the slaves particularly. Uh, for the British, it arouses the fury of southern slaveholders like nothing else has. Washington is as spitting mad as he ever gets through the whole war. And you see Patrick Henry and the you know, the, the usual uh, uh, planter aristocracy of, of Virginia and the states of the South, just infuriated by this. Because now the war has really come home to threaten their basic way of life. Uh, it's a disaster for the slaves in that um, they are, first of all, they don't have, as you might imagine, a lot of experience with fire locks, as, uh, as much as it's called. Um, they're not particularly good soldiers because they have no training. How could they be? They're in close quarters, and disease sweeps through them uh, and takes them by the hundreds. Uh, it's a terrible thing. Uh, this will be an issue throughout the whole war as the British periodically offer on a local basis freedom to slaves who come fight on behalf of the crown. For the Americans, uh, of course, it's the beginning of the you know, great tragedy that's going to culminate in the Civil War in the sense that trying to decide, and it will be debated, of course, when the Constitution is, is written, trying to decide what role <coughs> slaves should play in fighting for freedom and to the extent to which those fine words, all men created equal, should apply to slaves in the conflict. 
So at one point, I'll give you an example, and there are many of them, and I'll get to it in volume two. In Charleston, in the spring of 1780, there is an American army of almost 6,000 men down there, and they're surrounded by the British, and things are really bad, really bad. And uh, the proposal is made and approved by Congress that uh, the fathers in Charleston arm their slaves in order to give them the manpower needed to help repulse this encirclement. The fathers in Charleston basically say, we'd rather die. And they put it just as bluntly as that. And Charleston Falls, 5,500 5, American soldiers are killed or captured. The British will hold Charleston until the end of the war. Um, and it gives you some idea of the depth of antipathy toward allowing slaves to have a foot in the door. Last thing I'll say about it, the militias that particularly the southern colonies had formed and honed over the course of decades before the revolution began in places like South Carolina were not formed as a rapid reaction force in case the Spanish or the French invaded the coast of, of the Low Country in Carolina. It was as a slave insurrection suppression force, which was in fact used on a number of occasions very bluntly uh, in, during slave insurrections in the 18th century. Now may I use microphone? My question is about the financing of the war. In order to wage a war, you need money. And I've heard the stories about Benjamin Franklin traveling to New York trying to raise money. Were there major financiers, in other words, people, uh, the Rockefellers, the Warren Buffets, were men like that who were financing, or were they reluctant? Um, I can reveal this for the first time. Jeff Bezos wrote <laughs> um, Financing was a disaster for the colonies. Um, we started out, first of all, with very little specie, hard currency, pounds and, and uh, pieces of eight, kind of currency that's good anywhere. There's very little of it in the colonies when the war begins, and it diminishes very quickly. So Congress does what Congress does. What do they do? They print money. They begin printing money in Philadelphia, the states, the colonies become states in the summer of 1776, they print money. So there are $30 bills, for example. They're printing so much money, they end up printing $200 million, which is real money in those days, that of course, Depreciation sets in very quickly. By 1779, the phrase, not worth a continental, if you've heard that, is quite accurate, continental dollars. Uh, it takes wheelbarrow full. It's like Weimar, uh, the Weimar Republic, Weimar Germany, uh, in the period of hyperinflation after the First World War. Um, it's a catastrophe. Uh, you see price lists of, you know, a horse cost me $20,000, for example. Um, it's a catastrophe because soldiers don't want to fight without getting paid or getting paid with worthless script. Uh, it makes it difficult to buy what you need to buy in Europe. Now, we're helped by our friends. The French, first and foremost, they begin writing checks. Actually, bags of money are shipped beginning in uh, 1777. Uh, and the Spanish do the same. It's all quite secret initially. And that helps to tie us over. They're also shipping munitions, firearms, cannons, uniforms, flints for flintlocks, uh, what you need to run in the war. And they're doing it secretly at first, and then after the British defeated Saratoga in the fall of 1777, they come into the war openly on our side. Thank God. We would not have won the war, certainly wouldn't have ended in 1783 without the French. And it reminds you, incidentally, of the old Roman, the only thing worse than fighting with allies is fighting without allies. 
Next time we give a thumb in the eye to our closest friends, whether it's the Canadians or the British or the Kurds. Remember, fighting without allies. Britain was friendless at this point. Not a single ally. And it cost her the war. So with respect to money, as you get, first of all, Congress decides to stop printing money in 1779. And they have a buyback program. It's $40 to new dollars. And it's disastrous, basically. Um, it's a difficult thing. There are financiers who lend money. Uh, when Washington is crossing the Delaware in, uh, at the end of 1776, he uh, asks Robert Morris, who's a financier in Philadelphia, who's one of the uh, architects of the, of the banking aspects of the war, to send him some money so they can pay soldiers so they won't all go home as he's trying to attack the uh, Hessian garrison in Trenton. And uh, Morris collects uh, bags of odd coins. Uh, and it's believed that he got most of it from Quakers, from Quaker businessmen in Philadelphia. So it's a catch as catch can thing. It's not pretty. Uh, it's, and it's uh, very close to being catastrophic. What process did you go through to get access to King George's papers? Um, it was sort of an interesting thing. I, I, I sometimes uh, work at the uh, Society of the Cincinnati, which is, uh, they have a building on Embassy Road in Washington. It's not far from where I live. And usually they have a great library. And usually the last person to have signed in for I signed in the morning is me. <laughs> <laughs> because it's not widely used. So I, one morning, I think it was in early 2016, I signed in and I see that on the previous day, uh, there's been somebody from uh, King's College in London, somebody from the Royal Household, and somebody from Winchester Castle. And I said to Ellen Clark, the librarian, the visitors from England yesterday, what are they doing there? <laughs> and she said, well, there's this program, it's called the Georgian Papers Program, uh, where they're going to digitize it, blah, blah, blah. Uh, they're looking for American partners, and their partner that they settled on right now is William Merritt, the Omaha Merritt Institute, which is Zero Year Studies uh, uh, Academy associated with William Merritt. So I got home that afternoon, and I emailed Karen Wolf, whom I did not know, the director of the Omaha Merritt Institute, and I said, I, I hear you have the keys to the castle. And uh, she called me right away and said, Want to go? I said, Oh, yes, please. <laughs> and she said, Okay, pick your month. And uh, you can go for a month, we'll give you a little stipend, and we'll raise the skids to get in. Uh, so I said, How about April 2016? She said, Done. And the next thing I know, I have a little bed and breakfast. It happened to be the month the Queen turned 90. And Windsor, if you've ever been there, it's a charming town, and the castle, real castle, real worthy castle. It's a fabulous place. And uh, on the day of her birthday, which I think is April 23rd, as if you saw the crown on Sunday night, maybe you tell me, uh, the word went around that uh, the Queen was going to do a walkabout in downtown Windsor to help celebrate it. So I went down those 21 wooden stairs and 102 stone steps, and I saw the Royal Librarian, Oliver Irvine, as I was heading out of the castle, and I said, Oliver, the irony is not lost to me that I have left my post, the garret of the Round Tower, researching the American Revolution, to take my Union Jack and sing happy birthday to your Majesty. And stay to Windsor, which is what I did. So, um, you know, that's how I got in. They let in one at a time. And uh, I hope to go back maybe this year and do some more work here for the next five. Question, was the American Revolution inevitable? Is there a scenario where they could have finessed it so that America would have remained a colony? Um, I don't think anything's ever inevitable, actually, uh, historically. Um, but this comes pretty close. Uh, one of the problems is that the British, starting with the king, 
and extending to all of his ministers and both houses of parliament, majorities in both houses of parliament, both of lords and uh, commons, really didn't understand what we had become. They didn't understand the growing gulf between us. Now, George was a long life. as king, as I mentioned, for 60 years. He never left England. He never even traveled to Scotland in his long life. And so there's a lot he does not know about life, but there's a lot he doesn't know about America. And his ministers, Lord North, who's his first minister, prime minister, we call him today, Lord Sandwich, who's uh, head of the Admiralty, uh, they also have never been here. They don't know much about what this place is and what the aspirations and grievances and all the rest of it are here. So. Uh, as uh, the, the tensions build, beginning really in the mid-1760s, um, nobody has the wit. Franklin's in London trying to act as a, uh, an agent to find a compromise, because the king has no greater support than Benjamin Franklin. Franklin leaves, he's been touring in Europe, and when George III becomes king, Franklin breaks off his vacation to come back for the coronation. Uh, but Franklin becomes radicalized. Uh, he becomes as ornery as John Adams, really. And they can't figure out, for example, no one has the wit to really foresee uh, a commonwealth, which is, of course, how the empire is ultimately organized, where you have countries that have been part of the British Empire, Australia, Canada, uh, you know, it's, a, it's a long list, that are affiliated loosely. They have their own autonomy. Uh, they have their own sovereignty. But they have a, uh, an affiliation. It can be an affection for the crown. Um, they tend to be English-speaking. Uh, nobody can come up with that idea. One guy talks about it in his writings, and that's Adam Smith, who publishes The Wealth of Nations, a great economic text, a political economic political text in 1776. And he kind of has this idea that this would be better. Adam Smith warns very directly, the colonies are not good for you. There is not good for you. Uh, the imperial belief is that empires uh, you know, exist because they've got colonies that provide raw materials, and then they buy the finished goods that are produced by the mother country. Smith says that's you're missing the point. That's not how it works. So, you know, I think that especially when we get to the 1770s, we have episodes like the, the Boston Massacre, uh, the Boston Tea Party is really, you know, you know George is so enraged as December 1773 when rebels in Boston pitched the tea famously into Boston Harbor. Uh, they imposed very strict. Uh, retaliatory measures, at that point there's no turning back. And once the killing starts, then you're not going to stop. The war takes on its own momentum when people start shooting each other. And this will be our last question. There you go, ma'am. Make a good one. Hang on a second. Here, here's the microphone. All right. The narrative of the revolution has left us with many famous men. It's almost like, I mean, deservedly so, PR. Are there any that you feel were left out, such as Dr. Joseph Warren? Well, he's not left out. He certainly know he is in Boston. Now, he has the misfortune of being killed two months into the war. Killed, he did so much. He's killed him under Hill. Well, yeah, I mean, he's a real radical, and it's a great loss. Joseph Warren is a physician in Boston. And uh, he is really the central figure organizing uh, the, the Boston Rebellion. He's the one who sends Paul Revere out on the, on the night of August 18, 1775. Um, he's measured, although he's a radical, he's articulate, he's got uh, organizational gifts, he's got an executive brain organized for executive action. Um, he's a physician, but he takes a uh, commission as a major general of the Massachusetts militia on June 17, 1775. Uh, he wanders out, he's had a bad headache, so he's actually taking a nap 
as Bunker Hill is beginning, and wanders out to the battlefield of Bunker Hill and is shot through the head. And that's the end of Joseph Warren. So he's, uh, he's not forgotten, but there's eight, eight more years of war to go, uh, and he's not going to be part of it, except in spirit, uh, particularly among the Boston militia. Sure, there are there's always people that are uh, overlooked and forgotten and uh, people who leave no footprints. Women, Native Americans, blacks, indigenous. We don't know a lot about those categories of people. And it's not like they're not involved. Um, so you know, Abigail Adams is fantastic. John Adams' wife, uh, I said earlier this evening, I wish there were 10 of them because she's the smartest of the bunch. She's very articulate. She's a very good observer. Uh, she's witty. She's fiery. Uh, but there's only one of them. And uh, so, yeah, there's undoubtedly people, you know, who played important roles we know nothing about. Uh, that's how history works, particularly history from 240 years ago. And um, those of us uh, toiling in the vineyard do the best we can with what we got. Thank you again, Rick, for spending your evening with us. Thank you all for coming out tonight. Thanks again for having me. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.